Welcome to Blood and Spirit, the podcast for Black families evolving. I'm your host, Njamele Ali, and in season two of Blood and Spirit, we're going deeper into specific dynamics of Black family life. My guests will bring perspectives, experiences, and insights on issues of ritual and tradition, communications, marriage, and more. Today, my guest is Dr. Veronica Adams-Cooper. Dr. Adams-Cooper is a professor of public administration at Albany State University and founder of Art Triumph Historical Society for Artesian Renaissance. Welcome to Blood and Spirit Podcast, Dr. Adams-Cooper. Thank you so much, Njamale. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming. You know, the word is, if you want somebody, want something done, ask a busy person. That's right. (laughs) So here I am asking you to share about this fantastic historic project that you're working on. But before we get into that, I want to ask you my traditional question that I asked all my guests because it's um, my window into culture. And that is, what is your favorite non-alcoholic drink? My favorite non-alcoholic drink is ginger ale. Is it? Is it? it? That's a, that's a first. Mm -hmm. How did that come about? Well, I'm not sure. I like the flavor of it. Drinking dark carbonated drinks aren't healthy for your kidneys and probably the ginger ale either. But ginger is one of those um, root vegetables that, that have healthy properties. And I just like the flavor of it. Wow. You know, I get so much. I don't think I've, I, maybe I've spoken to two people mm-hmm. whose drink is doesn't have anything to do with health most people have in their mind improving their health with the drink that they've made that a part of their normal practice and so that's that's wonderful that's wonderful news and ginger i remember that ginger ale used to be the thing that my mother would have me drink if i had any kind of stomach issue going on it was like okay Ginger ale, ginger ale was okay. a thing, was a go-to situation. And it's definitely, maybe the sugar part of it is not as, as great as just a, um, the straight tea, mm-hmm. but it definitely does still maintain those healing properties that you were talking about with, uh, with the ginger root. So that's, that's good information. Mm-hmm. That's good to me. So I want like to begin by talking with you about your life calling. There was a convergence of spirit, and learning and location. There was uh, Dr. Hollis, who was the, Dr. Holly, who was the founder of Albany State University. You came into some information or reacquainted yourself with information from Dr. Uh, Dubois, W.E.B. And so talk about how all of those forces came together to help you know what your calling is in life. Thank you for that question. It's helpful as I look back over my life, I always have to retrace how did I get here. Briefly, October 1994, I'm in a very dark period in my life. I'm coming out of some major trauma and it wasn't pretty. And it was to the point of death where I felt going forward was not for me. Mm. And I share this story. There were no breakers dashing. 
there was no door flinging open or a window going up and mm-hmm. down, mm-hmm. but a presence came to me. And I hear those words today, create a foundation to help people of color heal from traumatic experiences. It was like a voice, but not a voice. It was it was inside of me. And there are different spiritual leanings that will, will explain that. And that's okay. But for me, that was my path forward. I began to look at life differently. By the time I come into my own self, or how can I say this, revelation, I'm in Jackson, Mississippi at Jackson State University. I'm pursuing a PhD in public administration. Why? If one looks at the role of public administration and looks at the role of community, the two go hand in hand. You need a strong process for families and communities to live together in peace. And primarily that's what public administration does. We administer government programs, but administering government programs says what? Taking care of the welfare of the people. So with the mission of creating the foundation I finished Jackson State University. I'm recruited at Albany State University. Now that's Albany, Georgia, okay? So I'm moving across the country. Right, right. And Albany State University is about to celebrate 100 years. It was founded in 1903 by Dr. Joseph Winthrop Polly, who did read the book, The Souls of Black Folks by Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois, who came here in the late 19th century with graduate students from Atlanta University, Clark Atlanta now, and they researched the post-emancipation process of Blacks in Albany, Doherty County, Georgia. And it was not a very positive experience. And Dr. Holly comes and he creates a new type of church. He was a minister contemplating going to Africa to plant churches and God led him to Albany. Mm. And Going back to their celebrating 100 years, each faculty, staff, and student was asked to do a project. And I'm at one of the convocations, and the student government president tells the story that I just shared with everyone. So I was like, I didn't realize that. Let me go back and re reread, mm-hmm. you know, uh, this story. And not story, but book. And in the middle of the book, there are two chapters on Albany, Doherty County. And I said, oh my God. Written so beautifully too. Yes. What a beautiful language. And so it was at the end of his book, Dr. Du Bois says a prayer to God. And in so many words, he's praying, let there come healing at some point for this experience. Mm -hmm. And I took that as that was that was the calling. And in chapter six or seven, he opens it up with the Song of Solomon. Um, I am black, but I am comely. 
and we were keepers of other people's vineyards. Mm. Who is the keeper of our vineyard? And the formal name for the nonprofit is the Estes Smith Vineyard Healing Foundation. And that's another long piece of the story, but that's the short version of how we come to our Triumph Historical Society. And that is creating the new narrative of healing and restoration for this 400 year period. We can't go back and undo anything, but we can look back and recreate in our own words, what that story was, what it meant, and not just that, but what it means going forward. So we're just very, very grateful to be able to be a part of this moment in time and scripture says in the Christian tradition that there is a time and a season for everything under the earth. We had the Middle Passage. We had the Underground Railroad. We had the Civil Rights Trail. And now we have the Artesian Renaissance Pathway, a pathway to healing and restoration. That is um, fantastic. That's fantastic. And I, I'm hearing other organizations and individuals talk about recognizing this 400-year history. And I really, really appreciate the fact that you are framing it as a triumph. Because that, the survival, our, our not just survival, but also thriving during those years, from the moment we set forth, set foot on these shores, there have been efforts for freedom and expression of all manner of creativity from the arts to science, to public administration, to social welfare, which is about public administration. All of those things have been expressed throughout all those 400 years. And that's a triumph of the human spirit. And I really appreciate you putting it in that context. Are you also connected with other organizations and individuals who are recognizing this 400 year uh, anniversary throughout the country? Right now, we are not, but that is the goal. The beauty of history is that it is a shared experience for whoever wants to participate. At the national level, last year, there was a bill that was passed into law that says we will celebrate or commemorate this 400 year experience. So there's an actual national commission that is charged with doing the national celebrations. In Virginia, they have their state activities around this. There are also several different nonprofits who have endeavored to do some activities. What I hope to do once we finish the actual birthing or dedication of the experience that we're we're, we're sharing in that I can make contact with those different groups to say, we would like to share this in the community chest of, of recognition or commemoration celebrations. It was, I think, prophetic 
and a fulfillment of this 450 years for, I'm sorry, 400 years for the Congress to have the hearing on reparations last month. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a, a very timely activity to take place as well. Well, I do too. And actually, there had been about maybe 25 years worth of efforts by Representative John Conyers out of Detroit for legislation that would study the impact of the enslavement experience in the aftermath, as well as looking at the possibility for reparations so that it happens in this year is a symbolic triumph of sorts. It is. Indeed. So did your undergraduate degrees in psychology and sociology also get you ready for opening up to the healing aspect of your work? Definitely both of them intersect in terms of the work of the Artesian Renaissance. We know psychology studies the individual man, woman, and sociology, the study of groups. And when we look at the process of our nation, we have not as a nation for the people who have survived the traumas and the trials through triumph, true enough, on that end, we have really not come to terms as much as we still need to. And then on the other side, for the legacy of the people who come from those who did those horrible things, they have not come to terms. And we will need the fields of psychology and sociology working hand in hand to help us do that. There are some groups who actually do the clinical side of it. We don't do the clinical side. We do more of the, the arts and the humanities as, as a public experience to help with those emotions and just for the creativity to help people celebrate the triumph. But there is a whole scope of, of clinical help that will be needed for overcoming some of the maladaptive behaviors when you look at what happened to African Americans as a whole. Were there some other trends throughout your life that also that you think brought you to the healing, that actually brought you to psychology as a, as a field of study and also sociology. What were some of those other trends in your life that, uh, that you can see in, in hindsight were moving you in this direction? Earlier I shared that there was that point in time where I came to in 94 where I didn't want to live any longer. Um, so I'll take a deep breath. Mm -hmm. When one examines the, the experience of enslavement and the aftermath, there is a theme where sexuality is one of the tools used in terms of violence, used in terms of fear, used in terms of keeping people in their place. There have been situations of sexual breach in my life that at an early age, I was unable to really deal with. And 
at that time period in American history, you didn't talk about those things. Absolutely. And to an extent, it's still like that. But there are many adult survivors now of early childhood trauma who are reading through, you know, the, the process of how do I go forward? And I really see psychology and sociology as, as interventions for me now that I didn't really even know were interventions when I was at that time in my life, in those early uh, teen, late teen, early adulthood years. Yeah. Did you ever partake in any um, type of therapy for that? Eventually I did. That was probably around my thirties where I actually, and I'll step back a moment. As I was pursuing psychology, I did enroll in a, either was a, it was a doctoral program that was going to be in psychology. And the first semester we had to do a practicum, our first practicum. And my professor, when he looked at my video, immediately he said, mm, Veronica, you will not be able to go forward until you go for counseling. And so all psychologists have to go through counseling. So you're going to have to go through that anyway. Right. But, you know, it's later on in the process. Yeah. So I was at my first, you know, I was at my first <laughs> class. Wow. And uh, his name, I won't reveal his name, but I was at the uh, University of Iowa. And so it really was a setback for me because it's like, well, who is he? He doesn't know that I need to do that. But years later, when I did go, I, I realized that that was so important um, that, that, I, that I go through that process. So you didn't respond. You decided, rather than go through that, you decided to end the program? Yeah, I, I didn't finish because if you're not ready, you're not ready. And I was not ready. That, that is such a, mm, such a real and present response. It's what so many of us have to when you know when we get to that door and and sometimes someone says offers what they think is healing what possibly could be healing but as you said you're not ready and how do you think that we can encourage people to get ready for the healing because as you continue to work in a healing way for individuals and for the community, you will meet with resistance from people who feel that perhaps you are overstepping your bounds to say that they need to be healed. How do you, what are some of the ways that we can get beyond those barriers and really speak to the hearts of people and get them to respond in a heart way? Well, certainly information is always important for a process of healing and restoration. Using the medical model per se, how many of us have gone to the doctors and they do this? There's a form that says, did your mom have this? Did your dad have this? Sisters, brothers, aunties, who in the family had these conditions? 
That's what we have to do socially. That's what we have to do clinically. We have to, using Dr. DuBois' methodology, when he came to Albany, he surveyed just about all of the African-Americans in place at that time. Now, the numbers have really grown, so we'd have to do a representative sample. Yeah. But it is, yes, tell us how many family members have had this, cancer, diabetes, depression, smoking, depression, sexual assault. assault, things of that nature. How many have been incarcerated? Now, who wants to talk about these things? These are ugly things, right? But they're real. And these are the things that keep us from moving forward. Our community, we have to know the numbers. We have to know what categories we lead in. And the only way we lead in those numbers is because somebody's family member is that statistic. Some, my mom smoked herself to death. So she's in that statistic. Our family has a history of diabetes. And so we are statistics in that regard. It's not all bad, certainly. But what happens is if we don't open up to the possibilities of having a better life, then that means we shut the door for that good life for our generations to come. And each family has that responsibility, each family. So the artesian renaissance sort of capsulizes that effort to get to that. Can you explain what the artesian part of it represents? The artesian renaissance is a symbolic notion that says, one, we all need water. So artesian meaning water. Water comes through science and all of that process, but this is one thing that people can relate to. If we don't have enough water, enough artesian liquid coming to earth, systems are going to die. Just like water, healing is a nourishment, it is, it is a balm that if we don't get it, systems will die. And how do we help people want something that they don't want? You make it palatable. Absolutely. It has to be delicious or yeah. it has to be attractive. When we go back in history and look at, as you spoke so eloquently earlier, about the creativity that once we reach the shores, begin to bloom, just like it bloomed at home mm -hmm. in the various territories and nations that we evolved from, the expression through the arts and the culture, the arts and the humanities and culture is just a rainbow for, for living. And the diversity that is in there, just yesterday, or was it, yeah, it was just yesterday, there was something like a little commercial and someone was rapping in Italian. Oh, wow. And I just, <laughs> you know, it's like we... Have influenced the we entire have, Yes, we've influenced it in so many genres. 
But when we look at a great deal of that impact, it has come through music, art, sculpture, um, tapestry, design, hair, makeup, clothes. just the clothes, the culinary arts of soul food. We so those are the those are going to be the avenues we invite the public to begin to use in telling their individual family neighborhood community and society stories of triumph it is using the arts and the humanities as that vehicle that water that we need as as healing so so picture this Tyler Perry, another um, soul who was breached at a young age, he used plays and TV and the mo movies as art to help him heal through his trauma. And in so doing, he brought laughter to people. He brought relevancy of some social issues. Yes but job creation yes. and wealth creation for yes. people who would never have it. Yes. So we do hope that as artists, as, as business owners look to the artesian renaissance as a new economic driver that just take it and let it be your own. We don't own it. There is no licensing for it. There is, and I'm sure as we get to the, the what do you call it? Um, help me out. The trademarking part of it. Yes. There will probably be some trademark things that we have to do. But the Harlem Renaissance, no one owned it. Yes. The Chicago Black Renaissance. So Richard Wright and um, Eudora... Zora Neale Hurston, Langston Hughes, Louis Armstrong, yeah. Gordon Parks, Maya Angelou. So we have many so artists. many that so many are escaping me right now. So right. please charge my <laughs> head and not my heart that yeah. I've forgotten names. But if you go to the website, www.ar. T-R-I-U-M-P-H dot net, you'll see some of the faces of the Harlem and the Chicago Black Renaissance. See if you know some of those faces and how they told their, their part of the story of triumph. Because this story of triumph didn't just happen in 2019. Exactly, exactly. It, it goes beyond even 1619 because there had to be societies in place to prepare those who left. Yes. And however we want to characterize their leaving, were they dispersed? Were they sent? Were they stolen? Were they taken? Whichever way you want to remember it, they still had to be ready for the task on this continent. And that was a that was some heavy lifting. That was absolutely heavy lifting. And there's like you said, there's so many stories that haven't been told because Chicago and New York have been written, 
What about all of the other cities mm -hmm. and communities in the United States? I'm working with a project now that's restoring the Renaissance story of Philadelphia. Oh, you know, wonderful. and so you know there, and it's just one, mm -hmm. you know, one additional city that whose story has to be told. And there, as you said, the, your project is about getting those stories told, and it's and it's wonderful. And that other dimension of artesian mm -hmm. is that it's so great, you know, because we got um, Chicago and New York already on the map mm -hmm. in terms of a cultural renaissance. Mm -hmm. And uh, artesian also relates to the city of Albany, Georgia. Yes, because it yes. is an artesian city. That's, that's part of our name because we have a, a foundation of so many artesian wells be right. beneath the ground here. And so that gives it, um, that gives us a special place mm -hmm. in that renaissance and kind of puts us on the map in a different way than Albany has been on the map previously. Mm -hmm. And and it's really inspiring to hear you talk about how I did not know that, that Dr. Holly had connected with W.E.B. Du Bois's writing when he decided to come here and establish that university. So it just really says that we really do have a mission here that our sense of Albany being a special place is not imaginary. It, it actually is dyed in the wool of this city. And so that's, that's pretty awesome stuff. So you're a professor in, at Albany State in the MPA Master of Public Administration program. And many of your former students are running the city. And, and community. Yes, and community. And so how, how has it worked for you to incorporate your life vision into your work as a professor? That's a wonderful question. And I'm looking at, at some of my, my work because in Jambalay <laughs> is one of my wonderful yes. graduates, one of my wonderful students. And it has been... I'm a sensitive soul, so I'm yes. going to <laughs> breathe deeply, yes. but I have been unable to really separate the two because they are one. Even with that being said, I've had to make sure I walked a particular line because sometimes people will misconstrue the work that you do with who you are. So having had this purpose to create a foundation to help people of color heal from traumatic experiences, it, it does have a spiritual root. And when I speak of spirituality, it's not necessarily one religion, but if I had to say there's been a dominant religion, it has been Christianity. And you never want to, as a public administrator, offend people who are of different orientations. And so I've had to make sure I, I did that. But the other side of it is being a mother, being a nurturer, being that someone who holds community in your hand, in your heart, in your spirit. And so students, they'll tell you the stories 
and believe them. Yes, I was that hard professor. Oh, yes. I yes. Because. <laughs> Those stories abound. <laughs> because life is hard. The community, the communities that many of our students hail from and go back to have a lot of serious challenges. And we need the best and we need the brightest and we need the most courageous civil servants, public servants, community leaders that we can have to be able to make a difference. And so I used to get those fiery darts, you know, <laughs> before me and in the back of me. But at the end of the day, um, I knew that I was helping to create that foundation for healing. Public administration has a value called social equity. And it is that notion of fairness, justice, and equality. That is what we, and I say collectively, the African-American experience has been about since day one. It, it has been helping humanity realize that all of us have a right to live a particular life. And so that I've had the, the awesome opportunity to, how is it said, if you do something, if, you, if your job is something that you love, then you've never worked a day in your life. Mm -hmm. I can kind of say that. Yeah. And I chide my husband, he's older than I am, and he's closer to retirement than I am. So I have about uh, a couple of, two digits away from retirement. But I'm beginning the retirement process now because you're in the community and so many other students that I have had the blessed opportunity to, to teach are out there doing the work. And now I want to begin writing uh, about yes. the work that y'all are doing and some of the other things that I've done over the years. And so I really appreciate that question that helped me to see how I was able to, to intersect those two things. And I, I feel completely and totally blessed to have had you uh, as an instructor, which I, I actually avoided for a while because <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, because of those stories. But now I know, you know, for sure that what you were doing in your uh, instruction process was healing. Mm -hmm. And I know that my experience uh, helped, was healing. My experience with you was healing. It and again, you know, we, when it happened, it was around the intersection of public administration and history. Mm -hmm. And so that growth has just really been, been wonderful. And I feel blessed not only to know you as an instructor, but to honor and appreciate what, has, what came before the instructor role and how you have brought those things together, art, history, culture, admin, public administration, and been able to help to plant wonderful seeds throughout this city that are helping it to grow and prosper. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that. 
Some of those things that you brought are things that I hadn't learned about before called National Issues Forums and Deliberative Democracy and Citizen Engagement. Explain those principles and, and how they work. Thank you. National Issues Forums is a national nonpartisan network of communities in terms of libraries, schools, bridge clubs, you name it, churches, who sponsor forums for the community at large to attend and to discuss national issues that impact locally. And from that, there is the opportunity to complete surveys that go up to the, to the national office. And at the end of the year for a particular issue book, that was the most important, they will share the findings from the public voice with congressional leaders. The intent of the National Issues Forums is for citizens to really know it requires talking together, deliberating together, and then coming together for action to address whatever. Now, certainly I would love to take credit for, no, I'm kidding everyone. <laughs> <laughs> um, National Issues was here in Albany as a result of the sixth president of Albany State University, the belated, beloved Dr. Billy C. Black. He, along with some other university presidents back in the 80s, traveled to the Kettering Foundation in Dayton, Ohio. That is a research foundation that explores how to make democracy stronger or work as it should. So he brought it to Albany, to the campus, and they did a whole lot of work before I even got here. I was a Kettering Fellow, one of the first, second, I was in the second cohort of doctoral fellows, pre-doctoral fellows at the Kettering Foundation. And I saw this model, I said, mm, it's interesting, I would like to do that. Will this work for the community that I'm going to serve? And when I speak of community, my passion is especially for communities that I hate to say have been marginalized or disfranchised, but who have not been fully appreciated. And it is difficult when people are trying to make ends meet to be able to do the citizen work that still needs to be done. And a lot of that citizen work is going to impact them in their daily lives. I still haven't been able to really say I've been successful at that, but I'm going to keep trying. Most recently, I have been trained in another civic tradition called Civic Saturday, and that too is an effort to have citizens rekindle that whole spirit of being involved in the community, doing our part to make sure our street is correct in terms of has everybody registered to vote? Has everyone voted? Not just in the national elections, but in our local elections. Did you volunteer for Boy Scouts? Did you volunteer to drive the school bus? Whatever it is that we can do as citizens to make our community stronger. So with my role in public administration, citizen participation 
and community and economic development are two are my subject areas. And so I, I again, um, like to be able to share whatever trainings with the community, helping us be the strongest that we can be. And deliberative democracy is part of that whole picture. Right, the National Issues Forum is called deliberative democracy because you don't debate, you don't argue, you deliberate. So you look at these issues and you say, what's good about the issue? What's not so good? What are the trade-offs? And so that's one of the, the other names of deliberative democracy. I see. Yes, and thank you for bringing that back out. Yes, you're welcome. So here's, here's an interesting, interesting question. I think. Is there any tension between actualizing your life vision and working in academia? Wow. Please repeat that question. I'm deer, I'm a deer or a doe, whatever, in headlights. <laughs> so one is, more time. Is there any tension? I don't know there is, you know, to speak of. You know, there's always a bit of tension, but is, is, is there a significant amount of tension between actualizing your life vision and working in academia? Yes, yes, yes. Shall I elaborate, please? Okay. For persons familiar with academia, there is this phrase called publish or perish everyone as you can see i have perished no you have not i have <laughs> perished i have perished no i have a phrase called public or perish uh -huh. public meaning if i didn't serve the community that I would perish. Mm. So I publicked. Yes. And I thrived. Absolutely. In my life mission. But on the academic side, I perished. I, I had a lot of difficulties in the academy because my publications weren't the typical journal articles that you do these, I'll say narrowly worded um, theories to go in narrowly read journals, to go to institutions that some people will never be able to get to. You can do it in a library loan and stuff like that, but the work wouldn't get to the people who needed it to get to. So for example, one of my um, strongest publications was the poverty analysis for the city of Albany it was. in 2010. Was super strong. Outside of the work that Dr. Du Bois did centuries ago, and then we had the FDIC in the Federal Reserve Bank, they did um, a publication about the enduring places where there was enduring poverty. And our East Albany was featured in that. We haven't really had that type of in-depth analysis of what was going on in Albany in terms of our enduring poverty. Our East side and our South side are significantly impacted still today by chronic low wages. 
and low median income and less academic achievement that we would lower academic achievement than that than we would like and so because those type of writings or publications aren't valued in the, in the academy i i suffer so there was a lot of tension uh, towards the writings that i did and they weren't in the traditional journals and so forth i did the conferences you know i did that but again my work was the people that i served the people that i served the community that i served with and and both you know both of those things are important both publishing talking and teaching the the academy as well as making the differences with the people who matter like you're talking about because and i think that in your work by by choosing public as compared to publish i think that you've made a difference in the academy that the academy doesn't yet see because your students are working in that arena as well and are making those differences that those publications are designed to make mm -hmm. or reputed to make and so the so the desire to educate the public and and educating those people who have to administer is which is a ministry is so important when you can help people who have to be in charge of administering the public welfare help them to see what is generally in the best interest of the people genuinely in the best interest of the people so so i appreciate i appreciate that so i would like to uh, talk about some of your early life and uh, you've mentioned some of the challenges that you had to face early and how hard that was and where they ultimately brought you Tell me some more about your family life. You grew up in Elizabeth and Rochelle, New Jersey, where you stayed until you were 17 and went off to college. So talk about life there in New Jersey and how it compares to life here in Albany, especially the insight that you might have in terms of family culture in both places. Sure. Growing, well, Elizabeth, for those of you who are familiar with the East Coast, is right outside of Newark, New Jersey, where Newark International is located, one of the nation's busiest airports. Elizabeth, at that time, was a growing city. I attended the Sacred Heart Catholic School that was there on Anna Street. And I attended from kindergarten up through seventh grade. As I was going to enter into eighth grade, the school closed. So we were in the midst of transitioning to Roselle. The fourth child was being born around that time. My baby brother, who has since passed away, uh, he was a preemie. And we knew in terms of he almost didn't, thrive but mm -hmm. we got at least 37 years of having a baby brother Wonderful. and um, but there were four of us so i'm the second oldest we moved to a home in roselle so my parents who were i would classify our household as working poor my dad was a laborer he worked for one of the chemical companies up 
there named DuPont. And my mom, she was a seamstress. She worked for the, um, it was, uh, oh, I can't even recall the name of the company. Forgive me, mommy, but both have passed on. But moving into a home, a single family home on Drake Avenue, we were one of, at that time, several African-American families. So more African-American families were moving into Roselle. And that experience for me was, it was a little different because I, I went to parochial school my whole life. So from K through 12, I didn't have the regular interactions with a lot of the neighborhood children because most of the neighborhood children who may have looked like me, they went to the public school system. And then going to the parochial school system, while I was around different cultures in terms of white persons, I felt isolated. So I really didn't fit there. And then I didn't fit with the African-American um, kids in the neighborhood. So I was always a bookworm anyway. I did a lot of reading, a lot of reading, lots of being alone time. My mom, again, being a seamstress, would try and show all of her girls her craft and I'm so ashamed. <laughs> you know, I cleaned up the sewing room because right? I was the cleaner. <laughs> but I did a lot of the, the domestic things of cleaning. So today, you know, I'm looking for anyone who does homework, meaning you will come and help me organize my house and all of that because I kind of shy away from it. But we enjoyed um, being a family as much as we could. My dad worked all the time. He worked two jobs, a regular job and then a part-time job. And then sometimes he got other kind of jobs on the side um, to bring up a family of four children and a wife and himself. My mom worked sometimes two jobs. And part of her second job was helping with the tuition. And nowadays, when I hear about school vouchers and all of that, I feel um, ambivalent in a way because my parents, they had to work if they didn't feel public school was going to serve their purposes. And so allow me to share that this is what happened in terms of that decision making. My oldest sister went to public school for first grade. And it was when she was coming home, my mom was flabbergasted that there weren't any school books allowed to be brought home for homework. And so she couldn't compute because when she went to segregated school, yes the books she said were raggedy but they had books and they were allowed to bring them home and all yes. of that but here it was once there was an integrated school system books couldn't be brought home for the children and so that was a defining moment for her and my dad my dad never finished high school um and he he knew that he would have to really work hard to support his family and he did 
and we miss them so much. Every Sunday, the three remaining children, the girls, we, we come together through telephone and we talk and, and we lament how we miss our parents. We just had our call yesterday, but um, we would go to, during the summers, sometimes we would go visit relatives or when it was just my older sister and I, we would be put on the train to go down to Savannah, Georgia. <laughs> oh, wow. oh, the train and days. Be, oh, yeah. I wish we had those now. And be with grandma, my dad's mom, or we would go visit my uncle, maybe in Ohio, or we would go to some of the amusement parks, the coastline in New Jersey. So we had Wildwood, we had Kingsburg, Ashbury Park. I remember those days, um, one tradition, during the summer, my dad would bring crabs home and they would be already cooked and steamed and spicy. And that was a summer ritual that we really just look forward to. And that's one of the things that we do now and as sisters when we get together. The youngest sister, she will, she's learned how to cook them and all of that. All right. I can't be in the kitchen when she's doing it. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but um, so we, we, we struggled as a family financially, but in spite of that, um, most of the time we had a very a good experience growing up. Um, now that they are both gone, and I won't say we're going to tell family secrets, but I already shared that my mom smoked. My dad smoked cigarettes too, mm -hmm. and uh, my dad he did he did like alcohol. I'll mm -hmm. say it that way. He mm -hmm. liked it a lot. Okay, and um, sometimes we experience the downside mm -hmm. when people like alcohol a lot. Mm -hmm. And um, but I would say overall, my childhood growing up was a good one. Um, to the extent that I was the one who always spoke her mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And complexion-wise, I took the color of my mom. Um, my dad is the product of, what would we call it? My dad is, would be classified as a Sambo. So that is a child who is the product of a person who is half white, half black. And so he never fit growing up because of his color. He was very light complexioned. And so kids teased him on both sides and abused him mm -hmm. on both sides. And um, so my other siblings took his complexion. I took my mom's. So there was a little family tension around calling me names. Oh, wow. That I, you know, had to deal with from my oldest sibling. But um, I've since come to understand that within the African-American culture, we have to really deal with the issues of colorism still. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, but I was, I was the rebel of the family or the black sheep. Mm. And I, even though home was okay, there was something else. And I went to college at 17. Well, I left home at 17, going to Grambling State University. And my mom, she was like, well, why do you have to go away so far? And 
I really don't know why other than that was my destiny. Yeah. I happened to see a movie called Grambling's White Tiger um, that featured Harry Belafonte as coach Eddie Robinson, the legendary football coach. That's inspiration. And because I went to Catholic school, I really, again, the black experience was kind of missing. And so I saw this, I was like, wow. Oh yeah. Okay. And so when we did the high school counseling thing and they said, well, what schools do you want to go to? And then I put, put it on there and you know, I, I made all the arrangements and everything, got the parental permission. They didn't want me to go that far away, but they let me make my own decision. Wonderful. And um, I'm glad that they did give me that free range. We talk about free range parenting these days. Okay. And my parents were able to come see me graduate. Wonderful. They met Coach Rob and the mayor and all that kind of stuff. Awesome. And, so growing up, I would say, you know, no silver spoon was there, had to shovel snow, rake leaves, clean up the basement when it over flooded. Good exercise. We lived in the flood zone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, yeah. I had some after school jobs. I was a babysitter and I was at DMV for a while. So I learned the value of work and... So I hope you'll share with us when we go into further seasons and when we really will go into more of the pathologies that Black families have to deal with. I hesitate, have hesitated to get into that because as you are focusing on the triumphs mm -hmm. of this 400-year history, I'm also focusing on the strengths and resiliences of families right now today mm -hmm. and the wisdom that remains that we can always tap into mm -hmm. at the same time what are we tapping into it for mm -hmm. we're tapping into it to heal to get better to grow and in order to do that we have to really at some point we have to talk about the things that hurt us and the things that hold us back and, and how can we tap into each other's strengths to get through those situations to to heal from that to rise above those situations. So I, I hope that you'll come back and when we're ready to go more deeply into those types of issues of child abuse, molestation, spousal abuse, and those other issues that we will go into that are, that are not as happy, but are just as important. Thank you. So you talked, you, I did not know that Sambo meant of mixed racial heritage. I, did, I didn't know that. And I also hadn't heard the term free-range parenting. It sounds interesting. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and uh, parenting is one of the issues that we'll be talking about in this season, later on in the season. What are, what are some of the techniques and goals and so forth about parenting? So that'll, that's another thing that I can uh, hopefully tap into you to get some information about. And also, in terms of the artesian experience, the artesian renaissance, and I'm connecting this with your family history, where you talked about uh, the rituals that you all did then and now. You have the ritual with your sisters of connecting by telephone each Sunday, traveling to various places during your childhood. All those are, are rituals that we don't think of in terms of that 
necessarily. We, we kind of think of ritual in a more formal and shrouded in religion kind of thing. But really, as Nana Kofi Tuta explained, uh, he gave us two points of language that are very helpful. And one of them is he brought forth an evolved identity for us as Africans in America, the evolution of going from colored to Negro to Black to African-American and now Africans in America. I'm calling him our emissary of Akan culture. He's a Philadelphia-born African in America who has traveled back and forth to Ghana over the past 35 years. And he explained to us in the first episode for this season, I'm I'm almost saying semesters, (laughs) for this season, a ritual is a practice, something that you do repetitively. Mm -hmm. And those rituals help to ground us in the things that we want to make the best of our practices. So talk about the kind of rituals that you see helping us to develop through the artesian renaissance and what those things will look like and how we can put those into our practices well thank you now just because you've asked me that i'll draw a blank right (laughs) (laughs) but one of the rituals that we want to embed in communities is what the artesian renaissance is It is a billion pages, probably, of text and writings that talk about the subject matters of the enslavement process and thereafter. But how do you, in a pragmatic way, a practical way, share with people the essence of all of that through the process of becoming the... um, I don't know if I would say creator or the mother of the Artesia Renaissance, but words came to me through a poem and it goes something like this. The Artesian Renaissance. The Artesian Renaissance is a period of healing and restoration. Beginning in 2019 with consecration, commemoration, and celebration. This new water is a new season that is to quench a major thirst for many as its reason. It will drench the earth with a new dawning, illuminating the 400-year African-American experience as a humanitarian bridge for many cultures to be honored for their diversity, sanctity, and richness within a shared future of purpose, prosperity, and peace for all. Get ready for that beautiful morning. So it's a poem, but it is also a song. It is also a story because in each one of those lines, there is an experience of so many people. And that's where people, again, get the, get the opportunity through this thematic artesian renaissance to tell their part of the triumph, be it through consecration 
or commemoration or celebration. And so that is one of the rituals that we hope will be embedded in different languages, in different cultures, in different parts of the world. That's wonderful. And that's being earthed, as uh, Nana Tuta has used that language, earthed and birthed this coming Thursday, August 1st. Tell us about that event. Well, the event is the birth of the Artesian Renaissance through a dedication program. There will be six midwives that will help in the birthing process. And those women, my sisters, we come from different backgrounds, from different nations, from different states, different time periods, different regions of the country. But through technology, we will come together through Zoom. And from Zoom, we will broadcast through YouTube live. So people in all parts of the hemisphere will be able to participate without having to spend thousands of dollars to travel hundreds of miles. Don't get me wrong. We know that tourism is part of economic development and it has its place. But as we move into this new season, we have to begin looking at the use of our dollars very, very critically. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we have strayed away from is pooling our resources. And we have got to get back to some of those basics. And so with having the broadcast through technology, we know that there is a digital divide. We understand that. But hopefully for people who do, say, a Super Bowl party and have people over, have an Artesian Renaissance party and have people over to gather, have a little breaking of bread. And we want people, as this season approaches, and what I mean by that is, even though we'll have the dedication on Thursday, this birthing process goes beyond Thursday because for a new season to really come into her own, it will take some time for that message to spread. And we just needed a way to make sure that for history, we had this occasion to say, this was official, the baby was born, she was among midwives, community elders, and that we will dedicate her back to the Holy One. And then the community will raise the Artesian Renaissance. And that is, it is, how can I say it? We may not be on NBC or CBS or wherever right now, but we know that the work that we do on Thursday of delivery um, reverberates through through the annals of time because the ancestors will be there with us and um, receiving the work that we do through giving of ourselves in this manner. So thank you for allowing us. People, if they go again to the website, www.artriumph, that's rtriumph.net, you'll be able to clink 
click on the link that'll get you directly to YouTube. We're new to the YouTube, so we don't have an affinity name. Okay. And so it's a very long name to try and get to the channel, and you wouldn't get to it, and you would miss it. So just go to the website. Okay. Okay. What a beautiful expression. I can't tell you how many points of resonance that has with me in terms of the midwives and birthing and earthing that experience to, to go forward. And it will also go forward beyond this year, correct? Definitely. This year is the birth year, but it has a perpetual aspect to it as until that time comes whenever that is we will honor this distinct 400 year period in time and i am going to be looking to students alumni to to do that as a matter of fact our board chair is one of my former students so another graduate and actually we have two former students on there and it is making sure that people who have been trained in social equity um, are part of this birthing process so it is well grounded in terms of we serve the community and what i would share is as I've done some of this work in the community, I've met a little resistance because of this. And I say this to my students, while our story as harsh and tragic, yet triumphant as it is, is not the only story of inhumanity. And there are other communities in crisis who need who people who have been through it and who have come out of it are we all whole anytime you have a war look at our war heroes they come back legs yes. gone mm -hmm. arms gone mm -hmm. brain damage mm -hmm. but we salute those heroes we say hey give them this give them that we are heroes, yes. heroes in our own right. Absolutely. And we're still on the battlefield. Yes. Still on the battlefield because we have new communities coming into America who are striving to live what many of us, because we're still wounded, can't even appreciate. Mm -hmm. And so that means our work is not just a black thing it is a black thing yeah but it's not just a black thing yeah it's it is a human experience and we want people to know you don't have to be african-american to celebrate the artesian renaissance and in that poem it says for many cultures I don't know exactly where I come from. Is it Ghana? Is it the Ivory Coast? Is it the Congo? You know, yes. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But those cultures are honored in this process. Absolutely. And we know that we have European, you know, nations within us mm -hmm. and Native American nations within us. Certainly Hispanic 
nations and cultures within us. Mm -hmm. And so we're kind of like the big brothers and sisters <laughs> of humanity. Absolutely. And we have to make sure we walk in that role. Absolutely. Beautifully well said. And I encourage you and, and our listeners to do catch the first episode of this season in which Nana Tuta talked about how we do begin to identify precisely which families we were snatched from and brought to the shores of North America. So that's a very interesting, interesting process. And it's, it's, it's wonderful to, to go from that, that perspective of uh, he represents the, the Akan tradition and how that has been earthed in Philadelphia. And then we come to you and hear about how you are incorporating the entire diaspora, but particularly the African and America experience rooted and grounded in Albany, Georgia, and going out from there. And what those traditions, new traditions, that coincide with the traditions that are rooted in our bones and connect with that and, and, and develop ourselves from that and heal from, from those processes and develop new processes. And then our next episode, we'll be talking with the, the sister who I told you I'm working with in, in the project in Philadelphia mm -hmm. that's making that Philadelphia story of Renaissance known. It's called Journey to Sanctuary. Mm -hmm. And it's about how Africans in, in the southern states diasporize to other parts of the country, mm -hmm. including Philadelphia, you know, New York, Chicago, and help to, to generate those renaissances right. in those areas, Oakland, California, you know, many places. But this, this part of the project is specifically focused on Philadelphia. So it's just a lovely picture of, of how we ritual you know, and using that as a verb and how that becomes a part of the legacy that we participate in and that we leave for the future. So I really, I thank you so much for coming, for doing this work. And I'm definitely inspired to have a watch party for the birthing on Thursday, August 1st, 2019, uh, via YouTube and accessible through your website, our triumph, A R triumph, A R T R I U M P H dot net. Go there, get the link, and participate in that watch party. At what time? Seven o'clock p.m. Eastern. Seven p.m. Eastern time. So I'll, I'll definitely be, be spreading that word about that. And I have just two more questions for you. One based on a personal experience, and one focused on a community experience. And both of these are questions that I ask all my guests. So on the personal side, what advice would you give to your 80-year-old self? What advice would I give to my 80-year-old self? Enjoy the rest of the journey. I believe I've worked hard, and now I get a chance to, to just enjoy seeing as um, – some people may say the fruits of that labor where I'm looking at what Njamale has done and Jasmine and Erica and Erica and Eric <laughs> and Shalina and Phyllis and Linda, all of my, my children, my students, 
and the other people in the community that I've I've touched that will be the winter of life so to speak and to enjoy that part beautiful and for the community question I call it my all power question if you had all power such that anything that you say will happen what would you decree for family history, and I'm going to ask it for you in two locations, for improving family culture in Albany, Georgia, as well as in general for Africans in America. That we would value family, and that would be for both settings. In my work, I've seen some of the aftermath of of unhealed family trauma and it's not pretty so I would decree that we would value family thank you so much I I feel that water I feel that I have let it drench I know I feel drenched in that artesian renaissance today so thank you so much for coming I've enjoyed this time that we've had together And I just encourage you and applaud you for your work and look forward to to seeing more of that time on that artesian beach. You know, it's going to be beautiful. So thank you again. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. This is so important to our current day history, but the history that's yet to come. Thank you. So that is it for this edition of Blood and Spirit. That's what it's about. Y'all have a great day.